when you are in a suicidal mood, you are suffering with emotional pain. There's actually anguish there. Just like you have physical pain, you can have emotional pain that is just as bad. And one of the things that I like to tell people is that, you know, they say, how can you commit suicide? Well, you know, it's a battle. It's no different than a soldier in the army who's on the front line who is battling an enemy. And uh, you know what? Sometimes soldiers don't come home. My name is Sean. On this podcast, Suicide Noted, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so we can hear their stories and their stories in their words. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we don't talk about it. And when we do talk about it, we're not very good at it, myself included. So my goal with this podcast is to have more conversations and have better conversations with people who have tried to end their lives. We are talking about suicide. That means it's probably not a good fit for everyone. So please take that into account before you listen. I hope you do listen because there is a lot to learn. Today I'm talking with Bill. Bill lives in Ontario, Canada. And he is a suicide attempt survivor. How you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you, Sean? I'm good. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate no it. No problem. One question that I always like to ask people, especially when we just get started, is yeah. there's, a, there's a lot of people who uh, have attempted to end their lives and they would never come on a podcast like this or talk with people so openly. Oh, okay. Yeah. No. But you're okay with it, and I'm wondering. Oh, I'm okay. Yeah, I, hey, I'm an open book. I'm. Uh, I, I. I. That's what I do. I'm a mental health advocate, and uh, that's you know, I, I'm. I'm. I've been in the spotlight when I did my magazine for 23 years, and I'm. I'm totally open. So. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, what kind of advocacy work do you do? What does that look like? Well, basically, what happened to my my background is um, in 1987, I was diagnosed with an illness known as schizophrenia. And uh, basically, I was hospitalized six different times. I lived in three different group homes. I had a suicide attempt, and I spent five years on the couch doing nothing, dealing with a deep, deep, dark depression. And um, and then in 1994, I actually started a publication called SZ Magazine, a, ma- a magazine on mental illness on schizophrenia. And I did that for 23 years uh, and then I retired, and then that brings me to where what I'm doing today is basically uh, I do a podcast as well on Sunday nights, uh, 9 o'clock Eastern Time Live, and I usually have guests on there. And then I also, uh, that's true, I have my Facebook group page, which is called Helping Parents of Mentally Ill Children. And, uh, and I do a little writing, too. I have a book that I've published, and I'm working on a second book as well. And it has to do with suicide, the second book, yeah. Wow. So you're, you're, you're in it. 
Yeah, I'm in it. <laughs> You're in it. I think for, for, for some people, certainly, when you go through something like this, I would imagine it's hard not to be in it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, it seems to be our destiny and uh, that. So, and, and, you know, I try to uh, help people as much as I, I, I can. I have a, I, I think I have a gift of making complicated things simple. And uh, that's what I try to do in my speaking engagements and different things. When I had my magazine, I toured all across North America uh, speaking at mental health conferences and going to trade shows and different things like that with the magazine. That's fantastic. Yeah. Mm. And then mm-hmm. just to give you some stats, I, I'm not 100% sure about the, the general stats on suicide, but I know with schizophrenia that um, uh, 50% of people who have schizophrenia will actually try to commit suicide and 10% actually succeed if you call that a success. Right. You know? Yeah. 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 Those are staggering numbers. Yeah, 50%. it's a lot. And, and because, uh, I mean, you know, uh, uh, my illness, schizophrenia, was, was very difficult to deal with, and it, it landed me into a depression as well. And I got to tell you, depression was uh, the hardest thing in my life that I've ever had to uh, battle with, you know. And you said you went through it, at least one severe portion of it for five years, not five yeah. weeks. That's right. For five years, it was five long years that I was basically pacing in my parents' place and uh, on the couch and uh, it, it, thinking of ways how to kill yourself, thinking, being, feeling hopeless and, and no hope and just uh, it, it was terrible. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was really bad. And uh, you know, you know what, um, Sean, if you don't mind, I'd like to clear clear something up at the beginning just so people can understand that like you probably heard a lot of times that people who attempt suicide or people who have been suicidal they say oh well that's selfish or how can you think you didn't think of us and everything like that but the the truth is that when you are in a suicidal mood or or uh, you know place is that you are suffering with emotional pain there's actually anguish there just like you have physical pain, you can have you can have uh, emotional pain that is just as bad. And one of the things that I like to tell people is that, you know, they say, how can you commit suicide? Well, you know, it's a battle. It's no different than a soldier in the army who's on the front line who is battling an enemy. And uh, you know what? Sometimes soldiers don't come home. And that's what it's like with with dealing with suicidal ideation and attempt is that we're in a against the suicide, you know, thoughts and no less battle than a soldier would be. And and unfortunately, uh, we don't come home. You know what I mean? In as much as I can understand that, I've never tried to end my life. So I would never make any assumptions of what I understand. Mm-hmm. I do share with people, I lost my best friend quite a number of years ago to suicide. And I remember the reaction or response from some people at that time, and to some degree after that, that conversation sort of faded away. And one of the words or ideas was selfishness. Right. And I am glad that I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always looked at it as somebody who was fighting through extraordinary pain. I focused on the strength he he must have 
mustard to deal with life yeah. for who knows how long. We don't know. That's right. That's if it right. Was a month or seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in my own battles with mental health issues and suicidal ideations, when, and when people use that word, it's a charged word for me. I fight back pretty hard, probably in ways that are not helpful to the conversation, but I want to make it really clear, like, that's not going to fly. You're probably a little better, it sounds like, at, you know, talking about it and being sort of more measured, I suppose. Sometimes, you know, in society, suicide is kind of taboo to talk about. There's people jumping over Niagara Falls close to where I live all the time and, and jumping into the river and the water and, and that. And we just don't realize how prevalent it is. I mean, last year, I my son in grade uh, 11 had a, a school friend uh, in his class and uh, he, he committed suicide. He shot himself and mm-hmm. nobody recognized any symptoms. Like he, you know, my son Dwight said, Oh, it just seems like another day. And he was fine. And, you know, you know, but you know what? It, we never know what's going on in the mind of people. Right. We never know what's in the mind. We can ask and we can get a tiny bit closer, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. The absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Are you comfortable sharing a little bit about, in addition to your uh, depression Mm -hmm. uh, and schizophrenia, your actual suicide attempt? So my attempt, uh, when I was back living at my parents' place, I was in a a deep, 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 dark depression. I was on antidepressants, but I think I was so, so low that even they didn't work and kind of thing. And uh, the things that go through your mind is that uh, it, it's a hopeless situation. Uh, I, I'm not going to have any future. Um, it's painful, the anguish, what you're going through. And I've gone through that a lot. So what I did is I decided uh, I had a lot of sleeping pills. And I decided uh, one day my dad went out of the house, went out to uh, Bingo where he used to go. And my mom was babysitting uh, for my sister. And so I had the house alone and, and uh, I took a bunch of uh, pills and I wrote a suicide note and I actually said, I cannot take the darkness any longer. I have no hope. And uh, then, so I took the pills. The that I remember is waking up maybe two days later uh, again in the psych ward. But what my dad told me, what people told me, my dad came home from bingo and uh, he noticed I was in my room and I was non-responsive. So they called the ambulance and the ambulance took me to the hospital. Uh, I was in intensive care. The only thing I remember again is two days later waking up and being in the psych ward. And uh, I know that my counselor came in and saw me and she told me that, you know, you had a suicide attempt and that you're very lucky in the fact that cognitively you're you're still okay because i guess apparently when in suicide attempts it can really damage you cognitively after an attempt what's it like to wake up after wanting to not be alive yeah you know i I think uh i think the first thing is uh you wake up and and you think oh gee i'm still here you know i'm still here and um it doesn't change. You you are still in the same situation, basically. So the thoughts is that, you know, yeah, I wish I would have succeeded. Several 
several weeks later when I got out of the hospital and everything, a friend took me to, um, to McDonald's for lunch. And uh, I told him uh, right there, I, I really shocked him. But I said, I wish I, wish I would have uh, been successful in my attempt. And uh, I'm still suicidal <laughs> kind of thing. And uh, he, you know, just uh, the thinking of it, just uh, uh, of him, you know, hearing that, thinking like, how, how can you think that, you know, why? And then another thing that is very, very pertinent to understand and this, there's, there's these two, two kinds of things that happen. Is that I remember my dad once saying that he, he won't commit suicide. I don't think my son will commit suicide because he knows that he's loved. Well, I knew that I was loved, but that didn't make a difference. The pain and the anguish was just too much. And then there's come my friend Dave, who was kind of a mentor to me. Uh, he was kind of a little bit mad or teed off that I would, that I would, try to commit suicide because he was close to me and um you you know he would say people love you and god loves you and that but i didn't buy any of that and so those are the thoughts that you have so that's a myth so if somebody if a parent or someone says oh my son will never commit suicide or my daughter will never commit suicide because they're loved that that doesn't hold a lot of weight when we're in that much pain right you had said that one of the nurses or the uh, medical professionals said that you were lucky that you didn't have any clear cognitive problems from the attempt. Correct. It doesn't sound like you felt lucky to have not succeeded at that time. Yeah, at that time, absolutely. At that time, I didn't. However, today's a new different story. And that was way back in 1987 and then five years into that. So during all that time, I've, I've gone through a uh, journey and um, through my life. And today, I can honestly say that I love my life. I enjoy life. And I wouldn't want to be anybody else other than I am today. And when you are suicidal, you're wishing that you were anybody other than yourself. You wish you just could be anybody but who you are. But today, I can, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of work to pick, pick up the pieces of my life. Uh, but I can truly say that... Uh, uh, I enjoy my life, but again, I'm I'm also a Christian. I'm a Christian, and I can also say too that uh, you know I have no fear of the afterlife and, and and being with the Lord, and I look forward to that. What I wonder, because you've done so much work in the field, wrote books, magazine, a podcast, you toured around, but when you were describing some of the conversations you had with people, it sounds like there's a real clear not only misunderstanding, but a, a gap that can't be bridged with words and saying, well, you don't understand. This is what it's really like. I know that I'm loved, but yeah. I, that said, you've done all the work for a reason. I'm sure in part, and you'll tell me if I'm not correct here, to educate others, raise awareness, increase understanding. Mm -hmm. Is that possible? Is it really possible to, to help someone get it when they haven't gone through it well i'll tell you i'll tell you sean is that uh i'm known about you know i'm considered a, a recovery expert for mental illness or whatever and i want to tell you the secret to recovery and the secret to recovery is to have a full calendar and to be social it's very important for your social network to to have friends and to have acquaintances and 
it's very important to have things on your calendar to look forward to and to to really do do that way um that that's very important however i think i want to make i just want to make a comment here sean if you don't mind because sure. i want to tell you though that about suicide is that what sometimes what looks like suicide is not a suicide and what i want to explain about that is that when i was dealing with my schizophrenia being delusional and uh, paranoid and everything like that i was hearing voices and i ended up walking down a four-lane highway toward traffic on the coldest night of the year and i was walking toward trucks and that and they were blowing their horns and swerving around me and everything like that. Now, at that time, because I was delusional, I didn't want to die. But say I, hit, I was hit by a truck or a car and killed, people would say, oh, well, Bill killed himself. Mm -hmm. but, the, but the truth is, is that I was just obeying my illness. And if I would have got hit and died, it's not a suicide. It was your illness that that ended your life it wasn't you who did it but when i took my sleeping pills later on and everything like that yes absolutely that was me trying to end my life and what you were dealing with schizophrenia obviously not everybody is dealing with that's a it sounds like a particularly hard condition if not treated certainly that's right absolutely it, it's it's very uh, very difficult and very hard and not everybody who commits suicide has schizophrenia some people are are just depressed uh, whether it be the chemical imbalance or sometimes it's what's known as situational suicide where people are in a situation and they see no a way out and the only solution is taking their life and and uh and i think that you know, being in business for years and everything like that, one of the things that you learn how to do is that you learn how to be, become a problem solver. And um, and I think that we have to when we're when we're talking to people who are suicidal or when we we are you know involved, we need to teach people how to be social and how to and how to deal socially and everything with with that problem. Teach them how to solve problems. And yeah. those problem skills, because because really the reason the majority of people commit suicide is because they think there's no other choice. That's the only choice that we come to. When you say the secret to recovery is being social and having a full calendar or, or part of it, I think that makes absolute sense. I also know there's a lot of people for any number of reasons that can't do that. Right. But I, but I kind of believed in, in certain ways that, that, that it can be taught or, or it can be like, so like I was very fortunate in the fact that when I developed my illness, I was 24 years old. So I, I, I had, a, I went through high school. I had a social life. I worked, I had a career, different things like that. So I, I had that. Right. And it's very difficult when people are hit when they're 14 or 15 and 16 because they don't have their education finished they don't have they don't have maybe some work experience and they're going through the right so so yes yeah, so i was very fortunate that that i was i had some background kind of thing right i had a work ethic and everything like that and when somebody who's who's 13 14 15 who's going through this without a work ethic well you can't exactly tell them to just jump in and get a job and everything but there are things you can do for example being social like um 
a lot of times when you go to an event where there's a crowd or something and everybody's talking chit chat and everything like that right and and it's hard to do because you know everybody whenever you're in a gathering people talk about oh well, what do you do for a living or do you go to school or different things like that right and it's not very easy to say oh well you know i, I i'm on the couch and i sleep 18 hours a day and i go for three cups of tea every hour and you know i'm just pacing and watching tv maybe nothing so that's not very attractive but when you go social you can i tell people when i teach them well pretend that the person you're talking to pretend you're a guest host or you're a host and you're interviewing somebody on a show and you know ask about their family ask about what they do and all and 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 you can learn skills like that so even though you you might not be an introvert you might not feel like conversation there are techniques and tricks to do to con to converse and to learn those social skills it's it's almost like an acting i mean it i, I it was very interesting because i can't, i had a uh a philosophy one time or wondering is that you know say for example an actor if an actor was clinically depressed could they act through their life and as if they weren't depressed you know what i mean and mm -hmm. that's a very interesting person can you override the depression by acting kind of thing you know what i mean yes that's a great question and a great idea to think about for sure yeah 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 how long after your experience in the hospital did you start to feel like maybe i can get this condition under some control and start to feel a little bit better and start to do the things that you've talked about in terms of getting better yeah so so sean my turning point came when let me just explain a little bit with schizophrenia first so with schizophrenia the, the word actually means split from reality or your outer reality and with schizophrenia you have what's known as positive symptoms and negative symptoms and it doesn't mean that positive is good. What that means is that positive symptoms are symptoms that are added to your personality that shouldn't be there. For example, if you hear voices, if you're paranoid, if you're delusional, uh, you know, things like that. If you're hallucinating, those things shouldn't be a part of us, but they are. And so it's called positive symptoms. Now, medication can clear up positive symptoms for the most part, but also you have what's known as deficit symptoms or negative symptoms and these symptoms are a lack of motivation a lot an emotional bluntness and emotional blandness a lack of joy uh, you, you have a lack of motivation and energy and, and a depression can set in so that's the nature of, of of schizophrenia so when i was uh on the couch and dealing these things we always are thinking you know we're always thinking like oh if only my dad had a different job or my mom had a different education or if i did this in school or if i studied hard we're always saying if i did this a lot would things be different but i remembered what a grade seven teacher said to me sean she said bill if you don't learn how to write properly in life you'll never amount to anything and what she meant about that writing was that I had very, very poor penmanship and I wrote like chicken scratch. So I said to myself, I said, well, I'm going to prove to somebody that I can do something. And so I called the Forty Literacy Foundation and I said, listen, I know how to read and I know how to write, but I want to improve my penmanship. Can you send somebody over? So 
a couple of weeks go by and Martha Mason, my friend Martha comes by and she's going to help me with my penmanship. Well, when Martha would come by because of the negative symptoms, I would say, oh my God, oh, Martha's coming tonight. That means I got to wash my hair and then shave and brush my teeth. All these things that are difficult with negative symptoms. But Martha would come over and we'd do penmanship exercises. And before too long, Martha would learn more about schizophrenia from me than I did penmanship from her. But Martha took an interest in me and she said, Bill, she says, you know, I know you're not doing anything, which was an understatement, but I'll go, I go to Niagara College and I'm, I'm in a social work course. She said, why don't you take a course and I'll drive you? And at the time my license was suspended and I thought, drive me and take a course. That, that means I gotta wash my hair and brush my teeth and shave, all these things that I do. But I signed up for a photography course and I did do the, the darkroom stuff. I went on, on the field trips. I, I bought a camera, all this kind of stuff. But I had no joy, but I just went through the motions. To my turning point, the next thing I know is that Martha's on the phone and she says, Bill, she says, I'm the seventh ordinary uh, chairperson of the Scouts, Beavers and Cubs, and we need a treasurer. How would you like to be our treasurer? I thought, oh my God, that's another, I gotta wash my hair and brush my teeth and shave, right? So anyways, I went to the meeting and I met Martha's husband. I met her children. I met Peter, who started. I started playing racquetball and squash with. And I started to help out with pub cards and campouts and, and Apple Day and things like that. And what it really did is it gave me a whole new social network People who accepted me for yeah. who I was and not what I had. So now I have friends, but all my friends are working and that seems to be the next thing to do. And so I tried to do a few programs and a bunch of things like that to, to get a job back. And uh, some was good. It was hard. I did, got, I did go through a lot of jobs, though, before I found uh, uh, what I wanted to do, which was publish the magazine that I published. And you did. And I did. So you, you were hospitalized in 87. That's correct. And I started the publication in 94. I started, I started to take uh, entrepreneur courses at the college and how to start a small business courses and things like that. And that, that ran for how many years? You said 20? That was 23 years. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you, Sean, how that came about. So, um, Dealing with, uh, you know, trying a bunch of different things. And then, again, the calendar, filling the calendar, right? I uh, got interested in town council meetings that were held Monday nights at the library. And I would go. So one night I was early and I was in the library. And I found this book. It was called 101 Ways of How to Start a Business with Little or No Capital. And I said, that's me. I have no capital, which is money, right? Uh, but I read in a book there was a scenario where a woman before VCRs were invented, she ended up watching three television stations and she did a newsletter on what was happening in the soap operas. She was watching the soap operas. And as soon as I read that, a light bulb came on and I said, I probably can't do a newsletter on the soap operas, but I could probably do something on schizophrenia and mental health. And that was a light bulb and that was in 1993. And then I actually, uh, incorporated my company, Magpie Publishing, Inc., in 1994. I have the Facebook group. I have the book that I promote, uh, To Cry a Dry Tear, Bill McPhee's Journey of Hope and Recovery with Schizophrenia. 
And then I'm working on a second book. It's actually on suicide, the second book. It's called uh, Over the Edge and Back. And it's about people who have uh, attempted suicide, uh, but who enjoy their life today. And then we're doing a little bit of a cultural flavor to it as well. Uh, you know, seeing what the culture, suicide culture is in uh, the, the West and uh, the, the Middle East and in the Far East. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. When you think about the way people respond or responded to you, your condition, your life, and I suppose given all the work you've done, how people tend to respond in general, what are the things that you find people do or say that are, is harmful to people who are in some kind of pain or despair? Sure. Um, sure. I would say, like, you know what, some of the... Some of the things that were, were, were harmful to me uh, when I was going through my illness and through my depression and everything is that, uh, you know, for the longest time, I didn't sleep. I would just be lying there in bed, you know, I'd be lying there in bed and all things going through your mind and, you know, your hygiene isn't good or anything like that. But I would come out of my room and walk down the hall and sit at the top of the stairs. And sometimes whether you're, you're, your mom or your dad would say something like, uh, you know, they would say, well, pull up your bootstraps, you know, just pull up your bootstraps or snap out of it, you know, snap out of it. And you don't snap out of these things. And something that is very difficult to hear is very common. They'll say, you're not trying. You're not trying. There's nothing in you to try there. There's in, in my gut, there was, I had a hole, a vacuum, uh, a terrible feeling in my gut from 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 being who I was at that time and and uh, there was just nothing in there to try you know what I mean as much as I can know what you mean yes I asked that question because I wonder again how do you bridge the gap with people who aren't going through that or you know there are people who go through similar sounding things but it's their unique experience so they're not going to understand exactly what you're going through by any means right how do we make that connection if it's possible for people not to do the tough love thing necessarily that and i don't think it really ever helps it might i, I don't think it does I think the best thing that we can do for people who are suicidal or <clears throat> with suicide ideation is just to be there, just to be there. Uh, you don't have to talk. You don't have to speak. Uh, you don't have to try to solve the world's problems or the person's problem. You don't have to try to fix somebody. We should never try to fix somebody, right? But I can remember many, 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 many times just sitting at the kitchen table at three, four in the morning, and my mom would be there with a cup of tea, and I had a cup of tea, and would just be in each other's presence, not really talking, but she was there. And I think, you know, a lot of times, like, for example, um, like, uh, we really don't know how powerful that really is. I can remember, I had an uncle a year, many, many years ago pass away. He had a sudden stroke, and my aunt, I was just in he was in the hospital and my aunt was in the waiting room and I was the first one to the hospital again. And I was just with her there. So then many weeks later, he, he, he passed away and everything like that. But my aunt raved and raved of how, how I helped her and how I was good. And oh, if it wasn't for Billy being there and everything like that. And really Sean, 
I don't remember really doing anything. I was just there. I was just there. A lot of people have a hard time doing that. And I wonder why. Why is it so difficult for people to just be there and not do those other things that aren't usually helpful? Fixing, tough love. It's a fairly long list, and I'm sure you you know them all. Well, you know, we're, we're all on our own journey, right? And I think we just got to realize that, that um, we've only walked in our, our, our own shoes. So we, we can never judge people. We can never be judgmental because, um, uh, you know, because we've only walked in our shoes. We've never walked in anybody else's shoes at all. And so we don't have that right to judge anybody, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm imagining with all the work you've done and the touring and the books and the magazine, you probably have a lot of stories (laughs) that you've heard, you've shared about yourself and no doubt many people that you've crossed paths with. Are there any that come to mind that were especially enlightening or eye-opening or? Well, you know, you know, what was funny, a kind of a a, a funny thing is that um, I got to tell you, um, when when you start getting your sense of humor back, you know you're you're on the road to recovery. You know because there was a long time that I did not have my sense. Of, I didn't listen to the radio in the car. I didn't listen to music. Um, uh, I was I was just you know everything like that. But so anyways, during group therapy, I was at group therapy and there was another fellow there. Um, I for, I forget his name now, but um, we would we would be talking. You know we we'd be talking and we'd be talking about our, 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 our stories. Like, so, you know, when I was delusional, I ended up naked on the street and, and I looked up at the, at the street light and I said, beam me up Scotty kind of thing. And, you know, Scotty, he didn't beam me up, but he did call the police, but you know, but, and then this other guy, he was saying, Oh yeah, he laughed at that. We're laughing at that. And then he said, you know, he said, Oh, well, you know what I used to do? He said, he said, I'd be in my apartment and I used to call nine one one and all the cops would come and everything like that. And they'd be knocking on my door saying, did you call? Did you call? And he'd be there and say, no, I didn't call. <laughs> we'd laugh about that. You know, not that, it, you know, not that it, we'd condone that. But, but when you can, and then like the, the counselor came in and we're laughing about our stories about our illness. And um, she, she was kind of amazed because she said, oh, you guys are funny. You can laugh about your situation kind of thing, you know. And, and so. That, that's definitely well when you when you I, I i think i have a good sense of humor and but when i was depressed i had not none at all but when it comes back you know that you're on the road to recovery i mean i can remember being on the couch and my dad sitting there and my mom would just say things like bill bill my dad was named bill too he'd say bill talk to billy you know talk to billy and he'd say well what do you want me to say what do you want me to say kind of thing you know and and once in a while, you know, I never had a smile on my face. And my dad would say, smile, smile. And I'd say, well, what is there to smile about, you know? And because it truly is pain. And uh, But you know what? I, I think if we, could, if we could tell people, you know what? This will pass in five years. You know, it, it will pass or you'll be in a better spot. And, and sometimes that's true and sometimes that's not. It's sort of like the soldiers on the front line, right? Some of us come home and others don't. And, uh, 
It, it is sad. It is, it's a very sad. And everybody knows of somebody who committed suicide. I mean, I lost one of my cousins through suicide. Uh, he hung himself. And, and, and a lot of times uh, it, it runs in families. If, you know, if, a, if a, an adult commits suicide, sometimes their children will and, and different things like that. So, but, but you know what, again, there's that difference between being in a psychosis and suicidal, actually having an illness and then being chronically depressed with chemical imbalance or being in situational depression, you know, and, 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 you know, like situational depression. I mean, you know what, we all, we all have consequences to our actions. Right. And we get in, sometimes we get into certain things that, that they're like my whole, with, with schizophrenia, you have three uh, legs to it. Like there's a genetic component there's a biochemical component and there's a stressor component mm -hmm. and genetics runs in my family. My mom was bipolar. What back then they called it manic depressive, mm -hmm. uh, but, and then so genetic and I had a biochemical, but my stressor, my triggering was, is that at 24, I got a girl pregnant and I didn't, ex and I didn't uh, tell anybody that I suppressed. I was ashamed. I, 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 I suppressed that. I didn't think I thought it was a mark on my, character and everything like that and that was the triggering point for me who had genetic problems and biochemical problems yeah. Mm. yeah and they all overlap i mean they're not that's right everybody's that's right everybody is unique not not two cases are the same sure there's positive symptoms and negative symptoms but everybody has a different combination of those and naturally the the all the challenges you went through uh, with your mental health condition affected your situational things in your life. You didn't have gainful employment, which often helps. You might've had compromised relationships, which doesn't help. So it really gets complicated, well, I suppose. Well, yeah. Well, well, Sean, here's, here's one of the things that happened to me. I mean, I, being on the psych ward, uh, uh, being on the psych ward, I was given medications and things like that. And I went through a different, a bunch of different kinds of medications. But once uh, one of them worked, I started to get into reality. I, my, my psychosis went away, my delusions, my paranoia, my voices, all these things went away with, with uh, medication. But you and I was in reality and you would say, you would think that I would say, Bill, Bill, that's great. That's great. You're back in reality. You're in reality. That's great. But you know what my reality consisted of, Sean, is that I realized I had lost my house. I had lost my job. I had lost all my friends. I had lost my financial security. And I found out I was just another one out of 100 people with this illness known as schizophrenia. So even though I was in reality, reality sucked. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. All the more reason why I am, I'm, I'm amazed at people who somehow get through all of that. Mm -hmm. And... It's just I, I mean I'm in I'm in sort of awe of that mm -hmm. to be able to go through so much of that and deal with it and, and and when how long were you in the hospital for? I was hospitalized six times and mm -hmm. at different lengths. So uh, you know some of the stays may have been two months uh, and some of the stays may wow. have been two weeks and, and and everything like that. And I'd go I like you know uh, I I was stable on my medication then I went off my medication I got sick again and. I tried to move away and, and, and start again and everything. And, and you know what, uh, Sean, what's very important, what I don't really know where I get it from, 
but I was very persistent. Mm -hmm. um, and I think persistence is the key with everything, you know, like I think they say something like Stephen King wrote something like 900 books or something like before he got his first one published or, or something like that. And it's just all about persistence, 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 and, uh, and trying things, you know, trying things. And, uh, you know, as, as a Christian, we say, you know, seek and uh, knock and seek and then knock and then the door will be open, right? And, and we need to do a lot of times seeking, seeking for an opportunity. And then once we do find an opportunity, we need to knock on the door so the door will open and walk through it. You know what I mean? And, and I think what happens with suicidal, I can say that and say be persistent and seek. But with suicide ideation, there is none of that. It's all too narrow. It's that narrow and that I'm hopeless. And the only solution, the only solution is it would be best if I wasn't here. You also yeah. had, it sounds like, some support. If you don't have anyone in your life who will pick you up from the hospital or do some basic stuff, you're in trouble. Yes, yes. You're right, Sean. And I'll tell you, I'll give you my thoughts on that. Is that, yes, um, people with mental illness who, who do well usually have a supportive family, have the support of family. But in saying that, I want to just clear, I want to just say this is very important is that with mental illness, you see what happens is that when you're out of reality or you're insane, basically, mm -hmm. you are out of logic. Logic doesn't, you have no logic. Where everybody else who is in reality thinks logically, they can't have, they can't help but think logically. And illogic or non-logic and logic, they don't mix. So my point is, is that we have so much homelessness in North America and around the world or, or whatever, and one of the reasons, or one of the reasons that it's not that it's not more, is that what I'm trying to say is that parents try their best. Mm -hmm. They try the best for their sons and daughters and everything, but because of the nature of the illness, the, of of that illogical and logical thing, the nature of the illness and the tough love and everything, we lose our children to the streets. But it's not because of not a lack of trying. It's not because of lack of trying. And, and uh, you know, because I'm sure, I know that more with my kids, I have three children, and if any of my kids were almost, I, I would try to, but you know what, it, the, the whole crux of it is because logic and illogic do not mix, and situations become tough. I would extend what you said about parents to everybody. I think everybody's trying as best they can, even if it doesn't look like that, and not everyone agrees with me. If you're coming from a place of logic or non-logic, we are trying. Yes. We're trying. It, it's in our DNA, I think. I, I can't say for sure. Until we stop trying, until we're not alive, there, there's some component of us that's trying as best we can. What would you say to families or friends of somebody who is clearly in distress? I would just say that, you know what, you, you have to... Um, you, you have to... Um, pick up on keywords you have to try to be with them you have to uh you know you, you just have to be there and listen you don't have to preach or anything like that now i'll give you an example i just i had a perfect example of what happened about a month and a half ago so on uh on on uh i think i was on somebody messaged me or she's a facebook friend or something like that and she wrote on a, a tweet or a 
post or something, I can't take it anymore. I'm leaving Facebook for good, uh, everything like that, right? So a few of us were worried about her. And, and so I actually called the police and I said that um, there's a girl that's here online. Uh, I know her and she's kind of, I think she's saying that she's going to commit suicide and everything like that. And so they were very helpful. They actually asked me a lot of questions and I think they went online as well. And they viewed her posts. They were able to view her posts and everything. And they did send somebody there, uh, a police that, that knocked on the door to, to see if she was all right. And uh, so I'm, I'm sure that's a common thing that happened. But uh, yeah, we, I guess we just, like you said, we just all got to try to do the best we can. And I think, though, you know what I think, Sean, is I think that in a lot of cases, people say, oh, what, what happens if I say something wrong or if I say, say something that's going to trigger them or that's going to be the cause of them committing suicide in that and 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 I think that we, we don't we don't have to think that way. I think we should think the opposite. I think let's just be open and honest and and discuss things, you know. I agree. I think there's perhaps nothing or certainly very few things anybody could say that would increase the likelihood of someone taking their life. We both talk about suicide or we wouldn't be here right now talking about suicide. I think the great majority of people uh are not comfortable talking about suicide. In your experience, do you have any idea why that is? That's a very broad question, I know, but why is it so hard to talk about this stuff? Yeah, well, you know what? I think I think I have an answer for you, uh, Sean. And the reason for that is that, for example, um, before the before the pandemic uh, uh, happened, uh, I used to get together with about uh, ten different people every Thursday night at a local coffee shop and and, and everything like that. And um, so um, during that time, and there are a bunch of church friends in that. So anyways, I, I started talking about suicide or something like that. Uh, uh, I, I don't know what the conversation was, but then my friend Paul said to his, said about his wife, Jackie, that she had a sister, uh, she had a sister that committed suicide. And uh, what happened is that we're talking about that. We talked to her a little bit and then finally said, she said, Oh, can we move on and talk about something else? And I think the reason that she didn't want to talk about it is that she still had some guilt. I think there, whether she could have done anything or anything, and I think that there's always guilt with people who are next to suicide or who have been near suicide. And I think that when the conversation comes up, guilt feelings come back, like saying there, there could have been something I could have done or something. Uh, but there's not that, you know, there's not in most cases. And, uh, but I think that a lot of times people um, have that, have that guilt feeling. Definitely a part of it for sure. Yeah. What else would you like to share? Yeah. You know what? I, I would just, you know, what? I would just like to share um, that, you know, what do you say to people, family members who have lost to somebody? And what I always say, and it's kind of like, again, that battle of the war, right? When people are in an actual war. But um, you know what? As, as a Christian, I like to tell people that I am sure Jesus welcomed your son or daughter with open arms into heaven. And I think that can be very comf com comforting. But you know what, uh, Sean? Because that's what I truly believe. Mm -hmm. uh, I truly believe 
that, that you know, some people ask me, is, is suicide a sin and everything like that? Absolutely not, you know? And I just tell family members that I'm pretty sure that Jesus has his arms wide open to comfort your son or daughter. I thought I knew a lot going into this project and I keep learning because you and other people are sharing. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Um, and it's healthy for me because I have my own battles and struggles and demons and talking about it invariably helps in some way. Yeah. You have a book you're working on and also your podcast. I'm curious what that's about. Yeah, so, so basically my book is called To Cry a Dry Tear, Bill McPhee's Journey of Hope and Recovery with Schizophrenia. And you can get that on Amazon or you can go to my website, billmcphee.ca, and you can uh, buy it from the website as well. And then my Facebook group uh, is called uh, Helping Parents of Mentally Ill Children. So if you go to Facebook and just go to search and put in there Helping, uh, helping Parents of Mentally Ill Children, and uh, my broadcast goes uh, uh, Sunday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern Time uh, live on that. The other thing that um, is very important I want to mention too, uh, Sean, if you don't mind, is that I have over 400 uh, teaching videos on my YouTube channel. Wow. If you just go to YouTube and punch in my name, Bill McPhee, M-A-C-P-H-E-E, my channel will come up and I got over 400 teaching videos up there. That's great. Yeah. Well, I'm thank great. you, Sean. I just know very little about schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. It's something that you have forever, right? Yeah, I, I consider that I'll be on medication uh, for the rest of my life. And medication does have some side effects, which I have. But it's the, but if I went off my injection, in six months' time, the nature of the illness, my, I, I would trick my mind, and I would, I would be psychotic again and uh, be delusional and everything. Yeah, so I say if I, I, want, a good, I want to keep my good quality of life, and if I want to keep a good quality of life, i got to take my medication. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you like this podcast, I encourage you to subscribe and leave a review because that will also help other people find the podcast and hear these stories. If you or someone you know would like to join us and share your story, you can reach us at hello at suicidenoted.com. Thanks again. Talk to you soon and stay strong.